right, I'm back here again with Roger Koops. Uh, Roger has been on the show before. He's a retired scientist, retired chemist living in Japan. And um, I'm going to let him introduce this part of his background. He's got a very, very wide background, but he used to do development for vaccines. He worked in, in vaccine development. And so could you tell us what specifically you did and when this was? Yeah, certainly. Uh, <clears throat> so after I left the bench side of the work, so I was a development chemist for a number of years on the pharmaceutical side, um, I entered into quality assurance and so became essentially a reviewer of uh, all the activities that are occurring in a company and um, eventually made it to a company that had just started, a company called Vaxgym, and it had started based upon trying to develop a vaccine for HIV. So a group of scientists from what was then Genentech um, that had worked on developing this vaccine, Genentech decided not to pursue the, the vaccine, but the group of scientists that developed it wanted to try to pursue it. So they spun off from Genentech and started their own company. Uh, and that was the, the beginnings of this company. These had been in existence for just a few years, and they had started some uh, trials in Thailand was the main place where the trials were ongoing. But to broaden the company's horizons, they decided that this was after 9-11, and there was the Biodefense Initiative had started <clears throat> under George Bush. Um, they decided that they would try to get into the uh, biodefense arena with manufacturing of two vaccines that were considered high priority at that time, um, just before we began to go into, uh, around the corresponding about the same time as going into Iraq. And that was, those two vaccines were smallpox and anthrax, smallpox being a viral uh, entity and anthrax being a bacterial entity. And those were both considered to be high possibilities of weaponized potential for, for terrorists. So we got into that arena. I joined about that time. I was put in charge of smallpox. Um, even though I was director of QA, uh, they needed kind of a technical person dealing with that aspect. The company itself was not trying to develop a smallpox vaccine, but had partnered with a company in Japan uh, that already had a, an attenuated uh, live virus vaccine uh, available. So it was a, a partnership arrangement and I was dealing with the uh, our company's side of it um, with the hopes of bringing that vaccine to the US and including that vaccine in the national stockpile, which was quite aging and needed to be replaced. So that's how I got started with all of the actual vaccine work. Um, the anthrax vaccine was being developed and was the purpose was to build a manufacturing facility and that the company is located in South San Francisco. Um, they were building a manufacturing facility and attempts to try to manufacture and, and um, produce the anthrax vaccine for the national stockpile as well. In that same period of time, uh, they were awarded a rather large grant from the U.S. government for that project um, and went into 
couple hundred million dollars, if I remember the number correctly, it's been a long time, but it was a pretty significant amount of money for a small company. So I had essentially two roles. One was trying to build a quality assurance group and oversee the quality functions of the company, including um, the building of the manufacturing facility, as well as being the primary person on the smallpox project and dealing with the Japanese company. So uh, it was quite, quite a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, and so, so just one question: you, um, you mentioned that the the vaccine from Japan was going to be brought in to add to the national stockpile because the stockpile was was getting old. But why would a new vaccine for smallpox need to be developed? I mean, there already was a vaccine for smallpox. Why not just make yeah, it more there, of the same? Well, th- there was. One reason was that it was, when it was first used was during the 60s and 70s during the eradication effort. And the vaccine at that time was an an attenuated live virus. Um, It was weaker than the natural occurring virus, but still was pretty hefty uh, vaccine. And it had a number of side effect problems. Um, It could actually promote uh, a minor disease in people. People would actually get the disease. So that was one problem. It also tended to have some uh, side effects, which are not unusual with with viral entities. Um, One of them is inflammation of the heart muscle, myocarditis. Uh, And so some some of these adverse events uh, were considered strong enough that in used in like a large population at that time, um, a significant percentage of the U.S. population was smallpox naive. Uh, They hadn't, you know, the younger generation had not been vaccinated before. Um, It was ending shortly after I was a a kid. So people, you know, after 1975, 1980 were not not being vaccinated. So there's a large gap of naive people in the country at that time. It was felt that going out with the old vaccine, which was in the stockpile, uh, really was not going to be, you know, practical because they would be happy dealing with a lot of adverse events. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was used in the first wave of military personnel um, going into Iraq. And they did have a oh, number wow. of adverse events going into <laughs> going into Iraq because that was the only vaccine available and they were afraid huh. you know, of bioterrorism. Bio- so wow. um, so that was the whole purpose was to try to and there were there were other competing um, companies competing with other types of uh, less virulent vaccines, also trying to enter into that stockpile mode. And eventually, the, the idea was the government would pick the one that they was best suited to go into the national stockpile. Maybe, maybe more than one, but it was going to be up to the, the government's decision and what was going to go in. And did they finally do that? Did they did they settle on one or? Yes, they they finally did, um, and. I can't remember the company exactly it came from. It was finally settled on in about uh, 2011, 2012. Um, when I came to Japan in 2008, I was consulting for the company that was making it. it was still trying to uh, uh, work with the government to get it into the program, but then the government stopped and settled on the their vaccine in about, about 2012, I think is when it got put in. So about but a, I don't remember exactly. But like a, 
about 11 years after 9-11. So yes, it yes. took a little bit longer than, than, than the length of time they're taking now to get, get a new vaccine for, for the declared emergency. Yes, it, it, vaccine development is, does not occur overnight. Um, you know, and these were known entity vaccines. Now, right. you know, to, be, to be a little bit fair, I guess, uh, yeah. fair is the right word, um, after they went in, into Iraq, of course, they found there were no biological weapons. I mean, they, they, they couldn't find anything. So uh, the, the immediate scare dropped down to a, a, a low-level simmer. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so there was no immediate rush. They recognized that, hey, we still have a population that is naive to smallpox. Smallpox still exists out there in laboratories. So the potential still exists that, you know, smallpox could come out again and we may need to vaccinate. So, but just that the urgency went, you know, down towards the bottom. Right, uh, right. And eventually the trials were done and it got in. But it, it's not, it's not a, you know, easy thing to do to get a vaccine developed and ready to go and get out there. Yeah. So what do you think, you know, given your experience, when you're looking at Moderna and Pfizer and now Johnson and Johnson and these other companies coming up with these vaccines in a matter of months, what are your thoughts watching that? Well, my gut reaction is that they didn't actually do it in a matter of months. Um, (laughs) I think they had to have had a head start. Uh, Knowing what I know, I'm not saying it's impossible. Um, I mean, you could throw floods and teams of people at something and maybe get it to go. But there's so much that goes into uh, getting a vaccine that, you know, what's finally in that little vial or syringe that's going to be pumped into a person's arm. There's a lot of work that goes into doing that just from the manufacturing side of it. Um, Even if you know the entity that you're going to be working with, developing it into a legitimate, you know, uh, safe and stable uh, composition to be put into people it takes time. You have to develop the testing. You have to do stability studies. Um, then you have to do the clinical trials, the vaccine clinical trials. So I'll start with I'll start with the premise that let's just say you have an identified entity um, that that you can use. That you've done preliminary testing on. And that preliminary testing is usually done in in animals. Um, Someone's laboratory laboratory testing, and you have something identified. So now you want to scale that up. Um, you've made laboratory amounts of it. You've done the laboratory studies. Now you need to scale that up to start your clinical trials. So the first step is you need to, first of all, develop some sort of testing regimen for it. You need to put some of that material, find out a, um, what kind of formulation you're going to do it with what is stable in the formulation. So you need to do some stability studies. Um, You need to start to put the material onto a stability study to find out if it is stable over a period of time, because it's going to take time for the finished product to be shipped out and distributed to centers before it actually gets into people. So you need to make sure that it's stable during that time. What conditions are it stable in? Is it stable in? Um, So there's a lot of things that go on in conjunction with scaling up the manufacturing process. Now you have to go from making a small amount of it to maybe start those clinical trials to making a large amount of it to deliver millions and millions of doses. Um, That in itself is a challenge and does not 
there's no guarantee that's going to work well or, you know, quickly. Um, so there, there are just many, many challenges that, that go along with that as you're going. And so there's many arms of the company working at the same time, working on the clinical side, there's the manufacturing side, there's the testing side, um, there's the marketing side, you know, all the logistics sides are all trying to coordinate together to get that going. And to do that in a matter of months from starting from scratch seems to me almost impossible. I mean, I won't go as far as to say impossible because that would, I don't know of anything that's actually impossible, but that's getting pretty close. It tells me that they had to have some sort of head start. So they had to have gotten to a point at the time when, you know, January or February, when it's like, hey, maybe we'll need a vaccine, where they by they had now done a lot of that preliminary work. I mean, that's the only mm -hmm. way you can get to a point where during the summertime, they're starting to get advisory board meetings on some of the clinical trials, um, even as abbreviated as the clinical trials were. Um, and, it, and these clinical trials, they, they, they don't include follow-up. They're, they're initial testing uh, to make sure that, you know, to get some sort of response and that, you know, the people aren't becoming sick from it immediately. So, but there's no follow-up to that. So it's, it's a very one-shot type. And, of and it's weird because, so the, the safety monitoring period was like between seven and eight weeks for Pfizer and Moderna, which to me seems like a very, very short period of time to monitor safety. And they then say, well, we're going to continue to monitor safety for another two years but at the same time, we're going to give the control group the vaccine. So <laughs> it's like, how do you, on what basis are you monitoring? So it seems to me like the, the actual safety monitoring period is over. It was, it was two, about two months. And, and yeah, we're going to continue to see things, you know, as people get it, but we have no control group to, to compare them to. So it's the whole thing sounds, seems very strange to well, me. It, it the thing is nuts. I mean, that's not how you run it. That's not how you run a control experiment. Uh, you always need a control. You need something to compare against. So as soon as you remove the control group, that I mean, it's difficult enough with a vaccine to try to sort out if the vaccine is even effective, even with the control group, mm -hmm. because you're dealing with so many factors, individual immune system responses, previous exposure. It's really, really difficult to understand just exactly how much impact the vaccine is having anyway. But if you remove the control group out of it, I mean, I mean, it's, you know, that's just, that's voodoo magic type stuff. I mean, there's no way to d discern out scientifically really what, what is going on. And I think that's maybe an intent there. I, I, I can't imagine why they would, would do that. Um, yeah, yeah. You can certainly find enough volunteers to be, I think, to not get vaccinated. <laughs> not get vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And you know, I'll tell you, from what I've seen of the rollout of this vaccine, under any other circumstance, it would have been halted months ago. Um, wow. soon, based on based on what? Adverse events. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as you start getting some deaths and significant number of adverse events, now yeah. halting does not mean completely stopped. It right. means halting it. Don't administer any more until we figure out what's going on. Do we have a real safety problem here or is, is it tied to the vaccine? Is it not? We, we need to investigate this. What do you need to do? How would you? So so we're seeing a lot of reports in the media um, and, and even on, on VAERS. There are, there are a lot of reports of deaths, of severe reactions. And 
one of the lines we see frequently in the media is, well, you know, just because there were these deaths following the vaccine doesn't mean the vaccine caused it, obviously. <clears throat> but in that process, you know, when you're going through to find out whether the vaccine was the causative agent, what, what is that process? How do you how do you determine if the vaccine caused the death? Well, I'm not sure I'm really good at answering that question in specifics, but um, <laughs> the one thing I can say is I'm glad I'm not in the in the industry now as a director of QA because one of the dreaded functions of being up in the top of QA when you have some event like this is you have to lead the adverse event um, investigations and when you know you have to deal with them and you have to do, perform the investigations and of course you let the people who are technically qualified to deal with that but it's very difficult to sort that out because you have so you have to first of all have if, for example, in a death situation, you have to have a really good postmortem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that is critical number one. You have to get as much information as you can from, you know, the body. You, it, it, because you need to start to sort through what was the cause. Was it something unusual? Um, or was this person, you know, ready to go anyway and the vaccine just happened to be there? Right. I mean, it can encompass any of those. I mean, Many uh, many places are putting the vaccine into infirmed elderly, um, yeah. you know, right off the bat. And I mean, there's even a question whether the vaccine is helpful to them to begin with. So they may just be dying from things that they normally would be dying from. The vaccine just happens to be there. Right. right. <clears throat> or it could be that the vaccine is stimulating, um, you know, some overimmune reaction, which is causing massive inflammation, which, you know, will lead to organ failure. I, I don't, I haven't seen all of the reports on the causes of death. I've only seen the numbers. So, and I know the ad, adverse reactions, there've been a lot of anaphylaxis cases, mm -hmm. which, which tells me that there's, these things can stimulate a really strong overimmune reaction. Um, anaphylaxis is, is a super immune reaction to something. So that seems to be a possibility. And I guess if you're in a situation where you have weakened organs and you get an overstimulation of, you know, immune activity, uh, it may be hard to recover from that. Yeah. So, yeah. I, it, you know, it's really hard to sort it out. And again, without, you know, controls, it's, it, it, it really becomes scientific detective work, which takes a lot of time. You know? And so you said something interesting. It, it sounded, I just want to make sure I understood this correctly. It sounded like you were saying that it's the quality assurance team from the manufacturer who does this investigation? Is that right? Generally, that's that's correct. But they, you know, in a case like this, now these things have been put under emergency use authorization, right? Mm -hmm. um, which gets into kind of a bizarre world of, you know, you you do work with the FDA uh, during these investigations. If it's you know something you've got out there already, let's say, uh, you know, you've, you've, you're taking some asthma medicine or something like that that's been approved for years and there's an adverse reaction pretty much the company at that point has to investigate that adverse reaction and, and try to determine whether there's a problem usually looking at the specific lot of material was there a quality issue with that particular lot of material um, you know or some some other issue so usually the company is primarily responsible for that and reporting the results of those to the fda in this situation with an emergency use author, authorization, um, it's much more of kind of the, a joint 
venture, really, because essentially this is an expanded phase three clinical trial. Right, right. Um, what is going on in the world is an expanded phase three. Not, I mean, it's emergency use authorization. It's not full approval. If it was full approval, we would call it a phase four trial. <laughs> but because FOIA phase four comes after it's already been approved, this is emergency use. So this is... Um, this is a different ballgame. This is the world is now in an experimental phase three clinical trial. And that changes without a control how, group. Without a control group. Yeah. Only the only control group are the people who aren't taking the vaccine. Right. Um, but it, you know, so it's it's gonna be a very messy sort of situation. And I I don't know, you know, in a normal, again, normal case when you have emergency use authorization. You're still under the clinical guise, which means that every person has to have informed consent. Right, which I don't think anyone's, or I don't I, think very many people are getting that. I don't. I don't know. If, I, I mean, I haven't. I, I, I haven't seen it. <laughs> I haven't seen anybody talking about it. Right. Um, and the unfortunate thing is, is that when you do an informed consent as part of like a clinical trial, there's also a um, a clause in there, a liability clause, right, mm -hmm. which is essentially you will not hold anybody liable that you are taking the risk. Um, if something bad happens to you, yeah, it's tough luck. You yeah. know, Cause it, you're participating in a trial and you're participating in a trial. So I don't know if that's even being, if people are being informed of that, if they are being given that option, if they understand that if something bad happens to them. And if they're um, not, isn't that illegal? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so getting back to the investigations, though, um, so under normal circumstances, it's the, the company that makes the product that performs the investigation and then hands that investigation, tends the results of that over to the FDA. If it's an EUA, you work with the FDA. Either way, why should we trust the outcome of that kind of investigation? It's, it's either, you know, the company itself, which has an interest in, in having the investigation go a certain way, or the F or the, the the company and the FDA, which also has ties to those companies. I mean, it gets a lot of its funding from the companies who who are you know submitting for approval. Why should we trust that process? That's a good question. Um, and as a former director of QA, fortunately, I never had to deal with too many of these things. And when we were dealing with them, they were on small scale. Um, you know, you get a couple of adverse events in and you, and you deal with it. Um, what people don't understand is being, being management of QA in any company is a thankless job. Um, you have your own management who views QA as a nuisance. Yeah, uh, you, sure. have, you, have, you have people working in the company who view QA as a nuisance, um, but QA is a requirement and it's important to have a good QA. So you're always doing these battles. It's it's a constant battle. Now the the one thing that keeps the, and usually QA wins out. I mean I have had to fight the battles, but usually I can win the battles. Um, one thing that keeps the companies, of course, on the up and up is the the market balance. Um, you know, if a company keeps a product out there that is causing more and more adverse events, and in the competitive nature of the industry. Um, not only will they eventually face the product being pulled out, which you know is bad enough, but then of course they lose their 
marketing credibility, so to speak. They get a, mm-hmm. a bad association tied with their name. So the marketing component, you know, the marketing side of the industry controls them to a degree. They don't want to take the risk of appearing to be the company out there pushing, you know, bad product, uh, particularly since in pharmaceuticals, a bad product can have, you know, serious outcomes. So uh, there is that control factor. Now, what bothers me about the current situation is that's completely removed. Um, there is, you know, the companies are getting the endorsement of governments. Right. Uh, governments are setting up funds for for claims um, from adverse events, right? So the, the governments yeah. are going to go be pay, bailing out the companies um, if their people start to make a noise about having experienced bad bad events or somebody dies. So the 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 the, um, the governments are taking care of this. The, the companies have very, very little liability. They've established their contracts months ago with governments. Governments are the ones that have been purchasing most of the doses from the various companies. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really nothing to lose. I mean, there's not, nothing to lose. No matter what the result of an investigation, they, I mean, like I said, if, if this had been a normal world, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, it would have at least been put on a halt until right. we get get a handle on what's happening. But so to this morning, as I was eating breakfast, they just started, I think, last week rolling out the vaccines here in Japan. Oh wow! And this morning at breakfast on the radio, I they were reporting yesterday of a death, sixty five year old lady linked to the vaccine. Mm. So they just started rolling out, and and getting that kind of reporting in Japan is not easy. So. You know, mm-hmm. if they're reporting one, I, I suspect there are, are mm-hmm. more. Well, and that's the other thing that brings to mind when you talk about, you know, the, the marketing component sort of being removed from the equation. The other part of that is that, you know, for years, vaccine manufacturers have been pouring money into the media. I mean, they're based, you know, you read the New York Times or, or MSNBC or a lot of these outlets, and it reads like pure PR from the vaccine companies. And they're also, you know, and now there's this big, there's a separate to, to censor any information that's critical of, of vaccine safety claims and all of that stuff. So it's really like they're, they're trying to, or someone is trying to control the information marketplace so that the information you're talking about that would, you know, that would act as a, as a counter to, you know, bad acts or just, or even just, you know, faulty products um, that information marketplace is being dismantled or, or just doesn't really exist anymore because of these efforts. Yeah, that quite a bit of that is that is true. And, you know, it's it's unfortunately it's a general trend of our society. Our, our mm-hmm. society has become completely binary. It's you know, there's there's no yeah. gray middle zone anymore. So now it's right. either you're, the vaccines cure everything or prevent you from getting everything or you're an anti-vaxxer. There's no nothing nothing in between, right? Well, you know that's that, you can't operate that way because the world is totally a gray zone. <laughs> you can't yeah. put you yeah. can't put everything into the black and white. Some vaccines are very effective. Uh, you know, you would want to get the vaccine. I mean, if, if I get bit by a rabid dog, <laughs> give me rabies vaccine. I'm right. not going to say, oh, I'm an anti-vaxxer. Please, you know, I don't want that because in a month or two, I'm going to be you know, dying a horrible death. 
Right. So, and you have a good assurance that that vaccine is going to work. There, there are reasons that that one works that's better right. than some other and, ones. And it has always worked. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, it's long. Yeah, it's been we, long got, established. We got, yeah, we got 150 years of of using, uh, you know, various forms of it. Oh yes. wow! So Pasteur started using it in the 1860s. Oh, interesting. He, before anybody knew anything about viruses, he he deduced, huh. you know, he he was experimenting with rabbits, and found that he could prevent rabies in rabbits and start it, the original vaccines were were horrible to experience, but you survived. Yeah. The, disease, the disease would kill you. The, the vaccine made you suffer for a couple of weeks, but you lived. Yeah. Um, but they've you know, developed now where it's not that bad. You, know, you, you have a few days of discomfort and that's about it. Yeah. But, but you know, it's, it's certain death if you get rabies. So right. you, what's the choice? And you know, there are others as well, like polio. The, the polio vaccines were, were highly effective at a time when polio was was very common in children um, and a very bad disease. So, I mean, there, there are certainly effective vaccines that you would want to take if you want to avoid getting something that's a little bit nasty. But right. then you go to the other end, and it's and particularly with upper respiratory viruses, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's really not clear at all. It's a very muddy picture even before 2020. And 2020 has done nothing to do that. Now, the, the thing about that you mentioned about the vaccine companies and the marketing aspects and trying to sell vaccines as the magic elixir is that, you know, unlike other pharmaceuticals that are made for specific diseases or, you know, sometimes it's for chronic use, sometimes it's, you know, short-term use, but they recur in the population, you know, anti-ulcer medicines, I mean, you know, people get ulcers, um, you know, anti-pain medicines, people get pain. I mean, th these these kinds of pharmaceuticals have, have a kind of a constant base of usage. So there's always kind of an income, I guess, that can be generated yeah. from it. Yeah. Vaccines are considered, you know, a low profit kind of one shot deal, if you will. Um, and not everybody takes them. Uh, so it's it's a part of the industry that feels like they really have to go out and kind of market it, you know, to get people to use it. Otherwise, they feel that their existence is, you know, going to be threatened because nobody takes vaccines, then what are we doing? Mm -hmm. So there is kind of a being pushed in the corner type of feeling, I think, mm -hmm. in some, some of these companies, because, I, you know, it is pretty heavy burden the the you know the way that we have set up the regulatory nature of pharmaceuticals in the US um, you know it's, yeah. it's it's not cheap to bring something to market including a vaccine so you right. want to try to get some sort of return for what the effort you put in and vaccines tend to have um, you know relatively low stability a low lifetime so you know you just can't make them in you know, put them away for years and hope. Got to use back. them once they're made. You got to use them pretty quickly, you know, within a couple of years, probably in most cases, but it depends upon the vaccine. So, um, you know, if you can't sell them, if, you can't, if nobody uses them, you're just flushing, you know, manufacturing. So why, know. why if, um, if, if, if the vaccine manufacturers perceive vaccines as being low profit, why is there such a push to keep developing new ones? 
I mean, and, and especially for things like upper respiratory ailments, which my own opinion is any sensible person would see, especially after the performance of the flu vaccine, not really the, the highest kind of medical priority out there. Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't know if I, I have theories. Um, I, I think, you know, there is a subset of group of people coming out of the public health institutes mm. um, who kind of have been, I don't want to know if, if indoctrinated is the right word, but there is a group of people who think that vaccines truly are the magic bullet um, of mm. stop, stopping human disease. Um, and there, there is a philosophical group that thinks that all we have to do is just get everybody vaccinated on everything, you know, and um, that will end, we will end disease. Now, okay, that, that's at the face surface value, that's kind of a, a noble idea, right? Uh, it, it would be nice not to have to go around every winter and have, maybe have a cold for a couple of days, but um, in practical reality, I mean, that's how we have evolved. Right. We, we have evolved to the stage where having disease is normal. Yeah. So what, what happens if we stop that? Uh, that's, I don't think that kind of ever thinking gets carried on much farther. What happens if we stop the natural evolution process of our interaction with the natural world? And we mm -hmm. do that relatively quickly. Uh, maybe over a long period of time, over the next couple hundred years, maybe we can start to develop, um, you know, the ability to, you know, better control that and maybe do it much more slowly and, and naturally. But what if, you know, the, the whole idea that somehow, and, and you can see it in how they're dealing with, you know, the, the COVID vaccine. I mean, it's being pushed as if until everybody on the planet gets this vaccine, that's the only way we're going to eradicate this virus. And that is nonsense thinking. That is, and I don't know where they're getting taught that. They're yeah, getting taught especially that. since it hasn't been established that it even prevents transmission. That's right. That's right. And it doesn't prevent transmission. Yeah. That's, that's the whole, no vaccine prevents transmission. It, what it prevents is you getting sick. It prevents yeah. symptoms. It never prevents transmission. It's not some, you know, it's not a, you know, Star Trek, you know, Next generation so type guess, block. <laughs> yeah, so so I guess the the distinction to make because um, you know there's there are some vaccines that we kind of talk about as being ones that that don't prevent transmission and others that do. I think the real distinction is kind of more is probably more subtle. Is it that, um, for example, the the pertussis vaccine is known for being you know, people who are vaccinated have a reduction in symptoms, but they're just Petri dishes for that bacteria to keep growing and spreading around. And yet it seems like with some other vaccines, maybe because it's it's stopping the, um, stopping the symptoms enough within the person or stopping the viral growth or the bacterial growth enough that they become less of a spreader. What, what's actually going on in the vaccines that we think of as being not as, as preventing transmission. Well, so what makes a person transmissible or, you know, what's going to make them give off a virus? And, and this is true of any virus. It comes down to a couple of factors. First of all, how the virus is transmitted, first of all. And second of all, it comes down to your, your viral load, how much virus you actually have in, in your body. Um, we know 
and, and have known that the higher your viral load, the, the more chances you are going to be of transmitting the virus. Um, so if you can control the viral load, even in highly transmissible viruses, like upper respiratory viruses, they're easily transmitted, um, you have a chance to reduce how that virus becomes transmitted in people. So the idea of a vaccine, you know, is it's not, vaccines don't kill the virus. Uh, vaccines yeah. do not prevent you from getting the virus. Vaccines stimulate your immune system. And the hope is that the immune system is stimulated enough that your viral load gets controlled. So first of all, you don't experience symptoms. Or if you do experience symptoms, they're very mild compared to the real thing, um, which means that if your viral load is going down, your ability to transmit the disease becomes less and less. It's not doesn't really ever technically go to zero as long as you have the virus, mm -hmm. but the, the risk factor drops tremendously. So, mm -hmm. but every virus is a little bit different on, on you know a little, on how they can be transmitted, and some viruses. You know, like HIV, for example, you have to have direct contact. So um, there was there was this data that came out of Israel that apparently might indicate that the that the vaccine is um, is reducing viral load. But when when I see something like that, it it looks like what they're doing is they're looking they're looking at PCR tests with people, and so. Have you, do you have you seen this the data that I'm talking about, or are you familiar with that at all? Well, I've 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 read some of the the stories. I haven't seen a lot of the data. I've, I've seen summaries of the data itself. What, what are so your I, thoughts on that? Well, we get down to the PCR issue here, don't we? Yeah. Um, which is one of the reasons why we're in the world that a situation that we are in right now. So I guess we need to kind of backstep just a little bit and talk about you know what. PCR is what it can do and what it can't do. I know you've had guests on that are PCR experts and you know probably talk circles around me, but maybe I can explain a little bit in less technical terms of yeah. why PCR is really causing problems. Um, I, I actually attended a lecture by the Nobel Prize winning chemist who developed PCR, uh, Dr. Kiri Mullis. Yeah. And I was in I was in graduate school at, at the time. And I, I actually went back trying to search through my boxes of old things to see, did I, did I take notes? What did I, yeah. you know, I, I, I remember bits and piece of, pieces of it, but I remember one question that he got in that lecture, and this was back in the 80s. And somebody asked him, because the whole idea of PCR is that it's a technique to enhance DNA, right? It's applied towards the genome project where you have maybe very little amounts of a DNA available to study. So it was a technique developed to allow a researcher to actually make more of that DNA so that they could sequence it and, and study it more. So it's a technique. And he was asked, well, what, what about, does it have any applications as a test? And he said, no. <laughs> he said, not really. Uh, he, he got, he said, it's not useful as a test because, well, first of all, that's not what it's designed for. Mm -hmm. And second of all, the, the best it can be is qualitative, which means that all you right. can do is say, 
yes, there's pieces of some DNA there or no, there are not. But that's about the best it will come up with. And, you know, he was like, eh, test no. And he maintained pretty much that position, um, you know, until his death in August of 2019. So he, he died just before all of this began. And I always wondered, you know, what would the man have said if he had been alive in 2020 to see what was being used with PCR? I, I yeah. don't want to try to imagine what, but from what I saw from his lecture, I don't think he would have been happy. But anyway, so his philosophy was, you know, this is a technique, it's not a test. And there's one fundamental thing. Now, what people maybe don't understand is that the original PCR was designed to enhance DNA. Um, coronavirus is an RNA molecule. Mm -hmm. So it actually has, you have to treat your sample first with something which, call, which is called reverse transcriptase, right. which, which converts the RNA back to DNA and then it's run through the various cycles. Yeah. <clears throat> Without getting into the complexity of the chemistry, as you cycle, you kind of more or less double the numbers that are there. It's not quite that easy, easily said, but that's about the best way to view it. It's kind of like, you know, the old adage, you take a penny, you double what you have every day. After a month, you're a millionaire, right? And that's that's what happens with PCR. So, and so when you hear about cycles and cycle thresholds, that's what's happening. They keep running it through over and over and over again um, to build up what is there. And in the case of, RNA would be RT-PCR. So the one problem is that when you've done that, at the end of the day, uh, you have no idea if what you've amplified is even infectious or not. I mean, it, you, mm -hmm. you can have fragments of the original virus that will be amplified up. You can have contaminants um, that get in there, that get amplified up. So the, old, the adage of PCR always was that performing a PCR on a person with no symptoms was meaningless, absolutely meaningless. A positive result means nothing. A negative result means nothing. It's, it's a meaningless test to give on people who are asymptomatic. So that's axiom number one. It's useless when it comes to that aspect. Its only use is possibly as an aid to really identify whether a person has that particular virus. So if a person has symptoms, sample them, and maybe you'll get a yes or no answer. And so it has just, to be done. Yeah. Just to pause there for a second. <clears throat> when you say that's axiom number one, among which group of professionals? So is this something doctors would widely be aware of, nurses, um, scientists? Like, is, is this something you would expect if I go into a hospital and they say, well, you've got to get a, a PCR test before we admit you, are the people telling me that? Sh should I expect that they know this? Probably not. I wouldn't okay. expect nurse doctors, at least infectious disease doctors should know that. Okay. Um, uh, you know, but I wouldn't expect all professional medical people to know that. Um, the scientists, you know, who, develop PCR. I mean, when they give these PCR kits and PCR machines to hospitals that have fast PCR turnouts, um, they should be telling them that. I mean, you know, if a person has no yeah. symptoms, what does it mean? It, our body, so to, to prepare a sample for PCR, you, they kind of digest the sample first to break down 
the RNA, right? Mm -hmm. um, DNA. And that's what your body does when it encounters the virus. So if your body does that, if you've had the virus, um, you have bits and pieces of that virus RNA in your body for an indefinite period of time. We don't know how long those, yeah. those remain. Uh, it's probably variable depending upon the person. Some people probably clear them in a matter of weeks. Some people maybe hold onto them for months. Um, but if you test someone at that stage and you get a positive PCR, what you may be only seeing is the remnants, you know, the virus, the infectious virus has long been gone. Yeah. And all you have are the remnants that are being amplified. So that's why in absence of symptoms, there's, you have, you know, there's no conclusion you can draw. Yeah. So that's, that's number one. It's a qualitative test. It's, it has a limitation, you know, without symptoms, you, you can draw no conclusion based upon a positive result. Nice. Second is the what they're calling the cycle threshold in terms mm -hmm. of viral load. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that's a very, very tricky proposition because number one, first of all, we don't even know what a minimal viral load is that's going to cause disease. Mm-hmm. And that, can, again, can vary from individual to individual depending upon their immune system. So a person with a strong immune system um, probably would need a pretty hefty viral load before they start to notice disease. A person with a weaker immune system may succumb to symptoms much quicker with a much lower viral load. We don't know what the minimum level standard is, so to speak. Yeah. But in order to make a determination by PCR, you need to have some kind of a control. You need to be able, you have to relate it back to, um, you know, some, some volume of the sample, for example. So when you're collecting a nose swab, I mean, you're scraping off the epithelial cells of your nose that presumably contain virus. Um, and you run that through PCR. What is that? What does that mean? What does that tell you about the viral load? Well, you, you need to know how much area or how much volume of sample that you took in order to relate it to how much could possibly be spreading through your body. Right, right. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen videos of them doing these sampling. Uh, I defy anyone to tell me how much area they're, they're pulling when they, when they do a sample. Yeah, yeah, only, good point. The only thing you have is you have this, the, the sterilized Q-tip end of the swab um, as, your, as your area point. But, you know, that's so you need you need to have a control sample every time you do it. So that that's that's another aspect. Trying to correlate cycle threshold numbers into viral load is is very, very tricky. And you need it to, seems like a big leap in logic to me, like to, to say that. Because I mean, I, I, if I understand this correctly, the what they're saying when they when they are equating a certain cycle threshold with a certain viral load, they're saying that because it took X number of cycles to get to, you know, to 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 to, to identify this to to get this this sample, that therefore it's a high viral load. Or am I missing something there? No, you're not missing. I mean, because the, well, the basic concept of PCR is that if you start with a very little, um, but generally, if you start with one molecule, right? So if you have one strand of RNA, by the time you run it through 30 times, you're going to have 
almost a pure sample of that one RNA. You're going to have right. multiplied it to, you know, several million copies. Yeah, but um, if you have to run it much more than 30, then... Then, then then it means you have, you know, maybe not a whole lot there to begin with. Now, if you have a lot to begin with, you know, by the time you get to 30, you may have a have a lot and a lot more. So there is there is a correlation between mm-hmm. the cycle cycle numbers right. um, and what you see, and but you, you still need that control because you need you need right. to know what you can tell relatively speaking between thirty and forty, but you don't know absolutely speaking what that what that actually means. So um, so that's and if of course you know something that's sensitive, you run through forty cycles. Um, now you get, you know, contamination can, issues become a, a huge problem. Are you amplifying the, right. the real thing you want to see or are you seeing Some something else? Yeah. 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 Because it, it's not the, the process is not selective to the virus RNA that you're looking for. If there's any RNA in there, no matter where it comes from, it's going to be amplified. So you need a clean sample to start with. So it's, it's a very problematic process. Um, you know, to, to be used in, 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 for that kind of thing. I mean, it's very hard to draw any conclusion about about viral load. I mean, it, it can maybe be done if you really do very stringent laboratory tests, um, but to, to do it on just kind of the wild usage PCR level that's being used, I, I think you can draw no conclusion uh, at all from it. And, and how do you, again, how do you distinguish that from a population that maybe has already experienced the disease and their immune system is controlling the viral load, not the vaccine. I mean, it's hard, pretty hard to draw the next step of logic, which is it's the vaccine, not the immune system. Right, um, right. So that... Is, is there a way outside of PCR, is there, is there a reliable way to look for the viral load in a whole population? Is, is, is that even... Is that even a believable goal? I don't think so. I think it's a virtually impossible thing to do. Um, you, you know, the, the all the viruses vary so much just on the individual. I mean, it's. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you would basically have to sample and pool everybody on the planet um, and try to draw mm-hmm. some conclusion out of that. But you know, everybody on the planet. So, uh, as you have pointed out, we're all walking cesspools of microbiologicals. Um, yeah. How do you how do you sort that out? I, it, you know, I don't think that's 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 a possible thing. It doesn't seem possible to me. I'm no, you know, right. molecular biologist, but uh, from what I know about it, that, that just doesn't seem like a any kind of feasible sort of activity to be even trying. Right. Right. There's one question I wanted to ask you. Um, so. You were a scientist, you were a professional scientist for, for a while before you got into, into vaccine development. Did your experience in the development of vaccines change how you viewed vaccines in any way? Uh, good question. Um, in a way, yes, because I, I certainly had, I have to go back to kind of my graduate school days before I went into the PhD program in chemistry, I had actually considered uh, medical school um, and also veterinary school. Those were the three kind of branches of professional world I was considering. I I actually took the the medical entrance test, the MCAT, I think it was 
called, I'm sure if it's still called that, and also the veterinarian e equivalent. So I actually did quite a bit of studying in terms of, you know, medical issues. I took, you know, a lot of biochemistry and, and so forth. So I had kind of a traditional medical view on things. And the, the traditional medical view was kind of like, you know, what I kind of described before, you know, some vaccines work well and some don't. And, um, it, it's, it's a tool. So a vaccine is one of many tools available to try to help mitigate, not eradicate, but mitigate mm -hmm. disease, infectious disease. But it's a tool, not the tool. So it's one of many, many tools. But, you know, I also learned at that time, a lot more was being discovered in terms of just the individual's immune system. You know, we've learned a lot about how the immune system works and how you can deal with strengthening your own immune system. And, you know, so vaccines start to become less of a part of a, that equation if you keep a healthy immune system. So I learned all of that back in the old days. And I eventually chose to go the hard science route of chemistry and, you know, didn't go into the medical part. So when I got into the vaccine round, I, I before that I worked with, um, I guess, disclosure time. I, my first quality assurance job was with Gilead. Uh, and Gilead, of course, is antivirals from the uh, pharmaceutical perspective. Um, and they have had remdesivir in, in 2020, right. um, which was, I guess, originally developed for they tried to do for Ebola. Um, but, you know, their main thrust, at, well, when I started with them, they, they hadn't even had their first product out yet, but they were essentially antiviral uh, driven company. They've expanded into other areas, but that's still their core, core thing is antiviral. So I already had exposure to the therapeutic side of antivirals. And then going on into the vaccine business, I got kind of the other side. And you know, as a as a QA person, I had to immerse myself quite heavily into all the as aspects of you know viruses and uh, immunology and, and vaccine manufacture and kind of testing and everything. Um, and I began to see that <laughs> you know really vac uh, vaccination vaccines as a tool is case by case specific. I mean, you, you can't mm -hmm. draw a conclusion about any, you can't say, oh, you know, all vaccines are wonderful. And you can't say, oh, all vaccines are no good. Mm -hmm. um, it is not that simple to do. You have to really look case by case. What are they doing? Are they effective? Is it a benefit to take it? Um, and I think with a vaccine, there needs to be a little bit more, I think, disclosure um, on not only the what, how the vaccine is being used, what what kind of entity is being used into you know becoming the vaccine entity. But many vaccines are also um, unstable. That the entity that is being mm -hmm. used is unstable. Proteins, in particular, are unstable. So the formulation uses what's, what are called adjuvants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, adjuvants, uh, a common one is aluminum adjuvant. Aluminum lends some stability to the protein. Um, there, there are, you know, 
a very limited number of adjuvants and not all of them have adjuvants in them, but the formulation itself is, um, you know, can, can vary from vaccine to vaccine. And I think there needs to be more information about, you know, when people get vaccines, just exactly what is it they're sticking in, in their bodies. I mean, with pharmaceuticals, you have package inserts and some, I mean, those, those can be for a person who's not trained in, you know, can be hard to read through those things, but they at least disclose, you know, the active molecule, they disclose the, the formulation. Um, you know, you, you can at least have the information there at your hand. But, you know, when you're going to get a vaccine, you, you don't usually get that kind of information at all. No, and, uh, and I've certainly heard accounts from people who um, who have asked, that like people go into a pharmacy and, and ask for the, the package insert, and we'll be told we don't have that available or we, we can't give it to you or we don't have that available. So you're, yeah, in a lot of situations, it's just, even when people are aware, it's not made available to people. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's, it's difficult enough to try to sort through a package insert, you know, on a pharmaceutical, but it's generally pretty straightforward. If you, you know, you can read the various ingredients and the various ingredients that make up like a, like a pill, are pretty pretty inert, um, and most people would recognize that. But you know, I think everybody you you have a right to know what's going into your body, um, and to at least have a reasonable understanding of what it may or may not do to you. Uh, I think vaccines. My opinion is vaccines fall short on that. They and and especially recently, um, you know, people aren't. Oh, there's new technology being put into these new mm-hmm. vaccines with with COVID, um, untested you know, untried technology, uh, I think people really have a right to kind of, you know, again, informed consent. Right. What does the informed part mean? Yeah. 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 And they need to understand the long-term risks too. Which we don't know yet. Right. I mean, how would we even, which is, which is why it's, it's valid to, you know, to, to, to point out and make sure people understand that this is an ongoing trial, you know, two weeks of safety data don't, mean that we know anything about the long-term risks. And we hear a lot of reassurances about, you know, because obviously there's a concern. This is a, this is the first mRNA vaccine. It's a new technology for vaccines. Um, and yet, the, you know, there are all these assurances. Are you reassured by, by those reassurances that we hear in the media? No, because basically I don't trust the sources. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, there aren't many trustworthy sources anymore. So I, that, that isn't, that doesn't uh, really do much for me. Um, you know, when you get kind of an, another, the other aspect to it is, you know, now the, the latest thing from Fauci is, you know, how we have to get everybody vaccinated in a hurry because of the new variants, right? Well, you know, come on, man, you, use your brain. Um, what is good is that going to do? So the, the, one of the problems we've had with trying to get, and people need to be aware, the, the attempts to make vaccines for rhinovirus, coronavirus, and, you know, has been going on for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what a coup that would be if you could actually develop a vaccine that stops the cold, right? And people right. have been trying to do that for a long time. Um, We've had influenza vaccines since the 1940s. Um, it's still with us. 
still with us and it, we have good years, we have bad years. And it's, yeah. you know, uh, it, it, it it's not the magic elixir. And coronavirus and rhinovirus have been trying to, they've been trying to do for a long time. Um, coronavirus got a lot more attention after the original SARS. Um, but the problem is that all of the upper respiratory viruses, they mutate quickly. As soon as they go mm-hmm. through a population, they're changing. Mm-hmm. So the new variants that are out there is normal. That is that is a normal right. situation. And the body may or may not recognize it. In oftentimes it will, but sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, and the vaccine may or may not recognize help recognize that. So it's um, you know, why and generally rushing? generally speaking, as viruses mutate, they generally become less lethal. Is that right? Generally, they're the trend, the you know, the evolutionary trend is that the the viruses that tend to survive are the ones that don't kill their host. So they're the ones that go out there and you know are going to continue to spread. So they tend to go down in in lethality. I mean, we've we've seen that with you know most viruses out there. I mean, these are the ones that that go through on a regular cycle. I mean, the the, the viruses that you don't see very often where some all of a sudden it can pop up um they they may or may not do that but even even if you look at something like ebola mm-hmm. you know it's it's hard to sort out how much is really the virus versus how much is the medical care that is given to it mm-hmm. and the living um, conditions and the living conditions so yeah. um even as nasty as people know ebola to be ebola has the reported mortality rate of 50 percent if you look back to the last Ebola outbreak in, was it 2010, 2011, something like that, um, nine medical workers from the U.S. got Ebola working in Africa. Mm. I think the number was nine, nine or ten. They were brought back to the U.S. The first one died. All the others mm. survived. Wow. So, you know, they got brought back up into good medical condition, you know, into right. hospitals that where they could be taken care of. Ebola, you essentially have to, you know, it's supportive care like most viruses. They got good supportive care. They got into a good condition um, and they survived. That's a mortality rate of about 10% as yeah. opposed to 50, 50% if you live in Africa. Yeah, but that doesn't make for good scare headlines. No, no, it, it doesn't. Um, but, but, and the, the first person they brought back kind of late. So he was maybe mm-hmm. a little too far gone, but um, you know, it's, if you get good medical care early on, most viruses, yeah. even something like Ebola, you have a pretty good chance. If you're a reasonably healthy person, you have a pretty good chance of taking care of it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's something, something we don't hear. We don't hear that much about that. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's selling the medical community a little bit short too. I mean, um, yeah. you know, you know, Doctors work hard and try to, you know, it kind of makes me laugh is this concept of, you know, capacity, hospital capacity, and we don't want to overwork the doctors or something. Well, I'll tell you, any any professional getting overworked is goes with the job. Um, And, you know, doctors understand that going in, Um, you know, every every seasonal virus season, you're going to have a you know, in any particular hospital, it doesn't last, you know, you maybe go about a week where 
you know, it's like nonstop crazy for every right. day, but, but then it passes through that population and things kind of, return it's part of the normal, normal yearly cycle. For it's normal yearly cycle. And, um, you know, that's just it, it, in Japan in January, the government set an emergency status based upon COVID, but the reason they set an emergency status, a state of emergency, was because hospital capacity, and it was mostly Tokyo, hit their 80% red line. They set, they set 80% bed wow. capacity as the red line. Oh, my God. I mean, how is that creating a false emergency stats. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I could I could see 98% or 97%, right. but right. 80% bed capacity and now we're in a state of emergency uh, in the middle wow. of the winter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And what what have attitudes been in Japan just generally towards towards COVID-19, towards the vaccine are what what are people that, just in your observation, what are people thinking? Um <laughs> there, there's still a lot of scared people. Um, and, you know, the, the government and the media is not doing anything to help alleviate, alleviate that. Mm. Um, but there is, you know, there is an underground movement that, you know, we're, we're all kind of in the underground now, um, mm. that is trying to get information out there. And, and the people here are, you know, most people do have some sense of common sense and have understood that, you know, we just don't, what you see in reality is not what you're being fed. Mm-hmm. So people, people are, are seeing that. And oh, that's um, good. But I, I, there's a, there's an interesting effect that has been going on and I call it disease denial. Um, people are afraid to go and be diagnosed mm-hmm. with COVID because that would mean, and, and um, you know, that they would have to stay home from work, uh, that people that they know would have to stay home from work. Uh, Many of them would lose their jobs. In Japan, there's not the kind of job security thing that there is in the US. They don't have the same kind of laws. So people are in denial about disease. Most clinics do not give, if you go in sick and you obviously have the symptoms of COVID, they will not give you a PCR test. So, wow. So the opposite of here, it's the opposite to give you an idea of the numbers in one year. And we've now hit the one year mark, right? In one year, Japan has reported a little over 300,000 cases Mm -hmm. of COVID for one year out of a population of 125 million. That's a pretty low number. Deaths, deaths are a little bit over 7,000 for one year. Compare that to the U.S. Wow. Now, the, the pol- it's a policy difference. So Japan does not have a policy of testing everybody. There's not mass testing here. It's left up to the physician. The physician decides whether or not you're going to get a test, which is the, really the way it should be. The way it makes sense. So those 300,000 are probably people who actually had symptoms. And the then- even more than that, they're probably the ones who actually had to you know, spend some time in a hospital Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. serious enough to that there was, a, and most of those are done in Tokyo, and and the Tokyo governor has set stricter standards mm-hmm. for Tokyo, and Osaka has kind of done the same thing. The rest of the country, they've been much more relaxed. Interesting. Uh, on on that, but so 
the clinics were, that are known where the physicians will not do testing are popular. Um, if, a <laughs> if a physician is known to do a test, they, they don't get so many people. Interesting. Um, so, and if you ask somebody who is showing some symptoms of something, um, nobody, nobody's going to say, I've, I've got COVID. They, they, they all say, oh, it's just a cold or I have an allergy. Allergy is the big thing. Now, oh, it's just an allergy. <laughs> right, because a cold, that's getting a little too close yeah, that's to getting, the reality. It's getting close to the reality. It's like, oh, I've got and influenza the same way. I mean, nobody, if, if, if they can possibly avoid going to a clinic for any of that, they do it. Wow. So, so it's, it's disease denial is what I, I call it. Nobody wants to admit that they are even sick anymore. That's and they, funny. And they're <clears throat> trying to suppress all symptoms. It's just a crazy backlash. Um, yeah. But, you know. and, and our, and our, and yet people must realize that other people are doing that too. Are you finding that people are afraid to be around other people? Like you, I mean, as we're seeing in, in parts of America. Well, no, that's that's the funny thing is that it's um, I go out, you know, people are kind of sort of go through the routine. Um, mm -hmm. I, I I myself, I, I am. Uh, there's no mask mandates here, so I don't wear a mask. Um, and I'm, I'm always in the minority no matter where I go. But the people that are wearing the mask um, don't ever say anything. Uh, I've had people wearing masks talk to me, you know, in, in the grocery store and stuff. So they don't avoid me. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes people do, but it's very, very rare now that, mm -hmm. that people will do that. Um, so, you know, they'll sort of observe the distancing thing, but it's not so much. I mean... And do you think um, that's more to 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 avoid offending others rather than because of their own fear, or it's probably hard to tell? Yeah, I don't see I don't see that same kind of you know personal. I think it's more of a social social thing. If they, yeah. if enough people actually start to you know dissolve out of that mode, it, it will go away because it's in Japan everything is kind of a, a social attitude. Yeah. I have been, I have been confronted only two times in one year as to why I wasn't wearing a mask. Oh wow. And um, on both occasions I introduced myself and my Japanese was at least good enough where I could do this sort of thing. I introduced myself. I said, you know, I am a chemist. I have a PhD in chemistry and I've worked in the vaccine and with viruses. Do you want to know why I don't wear a mask? They turn around and they leave. <laughs> oh, wow. we picked the wrong person to ask. <laughs> they don't and even want to hear. It's like boom. <laughs> just out of curiosity, who what who were the people who were asking? Were these like officials or were they just random people? No, they, they were just random people on the okay. on the street. Um, the only I, I can go anywhere. The, the only one time have I kind of been. I went to one of my banks and I wanted to, they had an indoor ATM and they had kind of an outside ATM. Um, and I wasn't wearing the mask and the, they have a person kind of standing at the door saying, do you have a mask? I said, no, I don't wear a mask. So he pointed me to the mm. out, outdoor ATM that, that happened once, but mm -hmm. other banks I go to don't care. I conduct my business. Um, I go to the city hall, conduct my business. Um, wow. there, you know, there's not, n none of that really occurs. So it's, it's, People are very friendly to me. I, I go into stores, 
cash register people. They're very friendly. They all know me. Um, mm. You know, it's, that's so it, nice to hear. That's so nice to hear. I just say, I hate to think of, of Japan being taken over by the mentality that's been, you know, by the craziness that's been gripping America. Um, it's, it's, that's, that's reassuring. It's, I mean, it's not non-existent, but it's yeah. not, it's certainly not to the extent that I, and you know, some of it may be the fact that I'm a foreigner and Jap yeah. Japanese tend to have a little bit of fear in, you know, addressing a foreigner anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, you know, the, in, I've not really seen, I, I'm, I've seen Japanese people not wearing, you know, masks and stuff like that. And What would um, you say the percentage is as you, when you're walking around? What, what? Well, out, outside in the, in the open, uh, the percentage is probably, I would say, more, more pe most people do not wear a mask outside. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say the percentage is probably... 75 25 in no masks you know okay. walking walking on the street doing stuff and it kind of depends upon the area but that yeah. in the downtown area there's tends to be more when you start getting out of downtown it starts to drop off so it depends upon the situation how many kind of people are around and so forth yeah um so it, it kind of toggles around inside stores um it tends the percentage swings the other direction. Uh, I'm usually not the only one not wearing, but it's probably more like 90, 10 oh, with wow. masks in, in, in stores. So it, it goes back and forth, but you know, you go out to the parks and stuff and you see the people out in the parks and very few people are wearing masks. So it's, it's becoming each week. I see less and less. I think people are starting to figure out that. Uh, and some of the news is starting to get out also about, um, you know, the health dangers of wearing the mask. Right, right. And, and yeah. people are, are now starting to take that a little bit seriously. Yeah. So, and that's coming from the underground sources, not, not from the ground. Right, yeah, it's it's certainly not in the mainstream here <clears throat> either. Um, one final question, getting back to the vaccine. Um, if you, if, if someone in an at-risk category, so if an elderly person, an elder, elderly relative, or maybe someone with diabetes came to you for advice, about whether to get the vaccine or not, what would you tell them? <laughs> with, with this vaccine, I, I, I don't know. I, I would have to be honest with them and tell them, I just don't see enough information that tells me that it's particularly safe. Now, I had a personal experience like that. A friend of mine had ca called me up and, and from, a, from the U.S. Uh, they're older than me and had received the first of the Pfizer shots and was due for their second one. And they started to become concerned because they were, you know, catching wind of some of the, the bad things. Um, and they called me up to get my opinion. And I said, you know, at first I said, well, I hadn't seen, I'd known that there was problems with Pfizer, um, but I wasn't sure of how it was going. But I, I initially gave them the information was that, you know, I, I, I think that if you've had the first one, and you made it through, you know, the, the second one is, is you're probably okay. But um, then I began to see that many of the adverse events were occurring after the second shot, mm -hmm. which was, I was a little bit surprised at that. So <laughs> wait a second, I was wrong. <laughs> uh, the second shot is maybe, you know, the, the one you need to worry about a little bit, but um, you know, I, I couldn't, I just, 
told this person, you know, what I knew, what I felt. And, um, you know, they had to make the decision for themselves. Uh, they'd gone halfway, I guess. Uh, and they, they had to, they had to make a decision how they were going to go forward. Um, for a person who's at risk, you know, I don't know, everyone has to evaluate that for themselves. Um, you know, I just don't, and this is the problem with, you know, how this has all been handled. There's just not enough good information out there to make a really informed decision as, you know, I can't even make an informed decision and I can probably, if I see the information, maybe start to make an informed decision. So how does someone who doesn't have that kind of scientific background, how do you even begin to do that? Um, I don't know. I don't know how to advise people like that. If it were me and I'm in my mid seventies and I'm in reasonably good health, um, I would not take the, the vaccine. Uh, that would probably be my choice. And I've, I've seen people older than me. I know of people older than me who do have diabetes, um, type two diabetes who did get the virus and who didn't have any problem with it. So um, that, you know, if you look at the CDC statistics on who is experiencing the severe outcomes, um, multiple comorbidities play into the factor. I mean, yeah. Just just being elderly with, you know, diabetes is not as bad as being elderly with diabetes, uh, kidney disease and heart disease. Uh, you know, you start. Mm-hmm. But then everything is a danger to you, you right? Know, in, in that that situation. So right. you including have to pick the and, vaccine, probably. including the vaccine. So, you know, you have to pick and choose which which danger are you willing to deal with and which one aren't you willing to deal with. So. Yeah. Um, that, that's something it's hard to advise people on, on what to do. They have to, yeah. you know, they need the information for themselves. And I can't tell them, no, you shouldn't do the vaccine because I don't know enough to know whether that's a good advice or not. And I can't say, well, you know, I don't know what, I, I, from what I know now, I, I wouldn't do it, but that would be my choice. Right. Right. To force, to force it on people, I think is wrong. I, I mean, that, that is, you know, what, what Fauci is saying is just nonsense. Um, you know, I, I, I read somewhere where some, some are calling for his removal from his position, um, which I get to guess now is he's called the chief medical officer of the U.S. or something. I don't like even remember. I'm surprised it's not, you know, another czar or something. But uh, yeah, yeah. 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 So, I mean, yeah, I mean, he should be gone. Uh, you know, th- this is not the kind of person you want. You know, and he's not a stupid man, but he is, you know, very political. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. He, this is not the kind of person you want leading the country when, you know, when it comes to these kinds of situations. Yeah. So, um, unless you're trying to push a bunch of vaccines on people, in which case. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Um, yeah. Covered a lot of ground here. Um, yeah, and I'd love to have you back on again um, if you're up for it to talk about uh, your experiences with the FDA and how how that all works at some point. <laughs> we relive the bad memories. Huh? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I thought I'd gotten rid of that years ago. <laughs> Could have forced me back into bad memory yeah, lane. Yeah. yeah, if you're up for it, if you're up for it. Yeah, um, no problem. Okay, all right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Take okay. care. All right, bye.